The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, for the past three weeks, there has been a steady stream of press talking about the alleged spying scandal on the part of the Chinese on the African Union. Now, this was a report that came out in January, right around the time of the African Union summit, by the French newspaper Le Monde, which alleged that in the middle of the night, the wee hours of the evening, strange data patterns were happening when signals were being sent back from AU servers and computers to China and to Beijing. Then later, they apparently discovered that there were bugs also spread throughout the Chinese-built building. And since then, we have seen really an uproar, but the tone of the coverage has changed dramatically in the past few weeks. What's very interesting is that there was real hard pushback from various very high-level Chinese people on this, notably Wang Yi, the foreign minister, and Lin Sontian, who's, who used to be, well, still is a very senior official in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs' African division and is now also the ambassador to South Africa. So they pushed back really hard. And then the AU also pushed back against the story in a way that intrigued and baffled me, which we can discuss. So the, the waters have become quite muddy around this issue. Yeah, so let's talk about the media reaction first, and we're going to go through piece by piece, and we'll get to the Chinese reaction shortly. But first, when the scandal first came out, there was a torrent of Western press, and this oftentimes happens when there are negative stories about the Chinese in Africa. And it seems to be this type of schadenfreude type of message that comes out of Western media, the aha I told you so. So, for example, in response to the Le Monde article, Financial Times wrote an op-ed, quote, Chinese bugs expose Africa's weak defenses. Uh, allegations about the colossal data breach at the AU headquarters provide a cautionary tale about the dangers of developing fresh dependencies. We saw similar types of coverage in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and many other Western media outlets. And that is in very much in keeping with the pattern of negative coverage of when Chinese are supposedly doing things bad. And the reason why we are saying supposedly and allegedly, it's not necessarily because either Cobus or I doubt what the Monde wrote, but anytime you have a story that is built upon anonymous sources, and this one was 100% anonymous sources, you do have to give a little bit of leeway to think that this is not 100% true. And Kobus, you brought up an interesting point that typically on stories this big, there are always follow-up stories. There may be other corroborations of the story, but we haven't seen anything since the original Le Monde report. There has not been a follow-up report, as far as I know, in Le Monde, and there haven't been any other media covering the story other than the response and the outrage. Is that the case as far as you see it as well? Yes, that is the situation, and it's baffling to me. It's like, why isn't Le Monde doing more work on this? It's, it's really interesting. I, I was wondering whether it has anything to do with the difficulty of reporting in Ethiopia, you know, which is notorious 
notoriously a very, very controlled system, you know, it's very authoritarian system. But I, I couldn't understand why there isn't kind of deeper, deeper exploration of these issues and, and, you know, and more documentation and on the record documentation of these things. Like, for example, how much data was sent over how long a time, you know, do we know anything about what, you know, what kind of data that was, etc, etc. I mean, what what kind of bugs were found and, and so on. It's just all of these kind of, Le Monde launched this broadside and then silence. And then everyone else repeated exactly what Le Monde said. And then the responses took it into a completely different direction. So uh, I'm still baffled about what was actually found by whom and, and when and so on. Well, let's play devil's advocate here. And it might be an indication of China's uh, incredible presence and power inside the African Union and how much is at stake for African countries to speak on the record and to confront the Chinese. So again, I am not necessarily taking a position either way. We have no way of knowing if this is true or not. It's just a fascinating discussion to explore. But let's say, for example, that there is information out there. People do know this information and they do go on the record. You got to think there are going to be some very powerful consequences that come from that, from the Chinese. If you are a representative of any African country inside the AU and you speak poorly, you got to think that maybe at that next handout of big checks at the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit that happens in Beijing, you may not be on the list to get those checks. So the stakes are incredibly high. And it made me think that the AU's response was a little bit too fast. The AU came out and said it was, quote, totally false. Ebba Kalondo, who is a friend of mine and a former colleague of mine uh, from France 24, and she is now the spokeswoman for the African Union, she dismissed it very quickly. And I would have liked to have heard from the AU that we're going to look into this, we're taking it seriously. This is a very serious charge and allegation, but they didn't do that. They dismissed it very, very fast. And that made me think a little bit that Ooh, they're afraid of getting too close to this issue. And even the logic of the of the dismissal. So Musafaki Mohammed, uh, the head of the of the AU Commission, said essentially that the, the the claims are false because the AU has nothing to hide. Like he essentially said, the AU is an organizational body. It doesn't have def- like secret defense information that it stores. Therefore, the claims are false. I'm like, those two don't necessarily go together. I mean, you can you can be surveyed without having any, anything juicy to disclose. I mean, it's you know, both of those things can be true at the same time. So, you know, the the the, the logic of his of his um, denial was also so strange to me. It was, and I think it's without merit too, because it doesn't take into account what China's agenda for spying may be. And for example, China has had issues in Africa, in Botswana and South Africa, with people like the Dalai Lama, who it does not appreciate when they are invited to to Africa. It has issues with Taiwan and certain countries still recognizing them. It has issues with African countries now they vote at international bodies, the World Health Organization, the United Nations, and so forth, the World Bank, IMF. So wanting to keep track of what African countries are doing so that those African countries align with China's interests makes all the sense in the world. And it reminds me a little bit of, you know, when I heard what you said about Musafaki Mohammed's statements, it brought back to me a, a, an old joke by Chris Rock, the comedian, the American comedian. And he said that, Men are only as faithful as their options. <laughs> and, you know, that's a pretty crass statement. But I, I think there's a parallel in international diplomacy that countries will spy only as much as they can. 
Why did the Americans tap Angela Merkel's phone? Because they could. Why did the NSA sweep up data from all over the world? Because it could. And I tend to believe that countries behave out of their very narrow self-interest. And if they have the technical abilities, the financial abilities, and the human resources to deploy intelligence gathering like this, they will. And they do. And in some ways, that was Paul Kagame's response, was he was kind of blasé about it and said, you know, this may have happened, but at the end of the day, we should have built our own building. And so I tend to think that if there's a chance that the Chinese did this, um, that wouldn't surprise me. And I think there's some legitimacy to that. I think, to me, the African Union wants to move as quickly past this story because uh, they don't gain anything from this story dragging on. Yes. But let's turn our attention right now to the Chinese response. And you brought this up at the beginning of the show. That, in many ways, has been more revealing than the African response. Yes. The Chinese have a lot at stake here. Their credibility is at stake here. Now, remember, this comes on the heels of Huawei being shut out of the United States on, in a very embarrassing way one day before the Consumer Electronics Show when Huawei was to announce a major deal with AT&T to finally have its phones carried on the AT&T network. This was going to be Huawei's big breakthrough. And a group of American senators sent a note to the senior leadership at AT&T and said, don't do this. We don't trust Huawei. They didn't give any precise evidence. They didn't give any proof that Huawei has connections to the People's Liberation Army or to Chinese intelligence, but they just said, we have a feeling that we don't trust them. So this credibility issue is critical and, for the Chinese and, to manage. You know, this, this, sorry to interrupt you. This is also, again, from an African perspective, it's kind of rich from the Americans to say this because, you know, there was recently a trial, or I think the trial might still be going on, of a defense contractor in the U.S. who, who, who exposed, you know, surveillance in parts of Africa, very much in Ethiopia, like American surveillance, very much in Ethiopia's neighborhood, in, in Sudan yeah, and other areas. So, I mean, we know... That you know that I think I think it's a very legit guess that there would be American surveillance taking place in this region and possibly of the AU itself. You know, so so in in, in that sense, like seen from an African perspective, this kind of this U.S. China Huawei fight is funny. Yeah, well, it, it points to this question, and the reason I bring it up of credibility and legitimacy. So, if the Chinese who are building parliamentary buildings, defense buildings presidential palaces all throughout Africa, government buildings of all variations, airports, if they're rumored to be bugging them and putting in backdoors into their computer networks, uh, this could have severe ramifications and repercussions on Chinese business interests in Africa. It could really affect the underlying win-win premise that the Chinese have built their policy in Africa on. And so that might explain a little bit why Chinese response has been so forceful and in many ways out of character. You mentioned your good friend, Ambassador Lin Songtian. I say your good friend mm-hmm. only because you've met him. Uh, you do, I've met him once. You met him <laughs> once, but he seems like a very charismatic man. And he did something very unusual in response to this crisis. He went on live TV in South Africa and he forcefully denounced the accusations that China was spying. And what was amazing was that if you put this in the context of how senior Chinese leaders normally respond to the media and to these type of crises, it's heavily scripted, heavily prescribed, very rarely on live television. Very rarely do they ever do it in English. 
They always do it in their native language. And so Ambassador Lin here, he broke so many of the precedents of Chinese diplomacy. Let's take a listen. So this is taken from SABC, broadcast live in response, and you will hear his tone, how forceful it is, and almost just pissed off and angry that he has to defend the Chinese. In working with the Afghan brothers, China never attaches any precursor strengths, never may other do things against their wills, never interference, interferes with others' domestic affairs, and never made empty promise to Afghan brothers. China has never had any problem in exchanges in, in exchanging information with Afghan brothers and sisters. Therefore, we have no need to resort to such despicable and disgraceful moves used by some certain country to gather information from others. Kobus, what I found so interesting was I've never heard a Chinese diplomat with that type of disgust in his voice. And he used the word despicable. But what we're hearing very much in the Chinese response, and as a media scholar, I'd be curious to get your take on this, is the conflation in the Chinese response by merging the media with the state. So they are saying in many ways that the French are behind this, that French intelligence is behind this, that French media is behind this, that the West is behind this. They're using so many different words. And when I say they, this is commentaries in Xinhua, in Global Times, from Ambassador Lin, from Foreign Minister Wang Yi. And this conflation of the state and the media, they don't confine their response precisely to Le Monde. They often are saying Western intelligence, Western states, and European states. What do you read into that in their response by that conflation of the state and the media? I completely agree. Like they, they seem to they seem to think of Western media as direct agents of Western states. So that the media, you know, anything the media does would have some kind of state agenda behind it, and you know, discounting the the media as an independent actor, you know, which which makes sense. You know, there's a point that you made uh, before we started recording that in a lot of ways that is kind of how things work in China. You know, that the state and the the media have a, a much closer relationship, and so from that kind of worldview, it does make sense. But it also the the, the kind of fury of of the of the response was again for me. You know, stepping so far away from the substance of the allegations, stepping so far away from, you know, what was implanted in which wall when, and immediately taking it into this high emotional kind of, oh, this, you know, these the very allegation is despicable. Whereas, you know, no, I think the, the allegation can be made. You know, the it's, it's interesting for me that, how can I say, like, you know, th- that kind of level of high emotional response seems to me revealing in lots of kind of ways. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Witt University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. Let's take two quotes here just to give you a sense of what the response is. Foreign Minister Wang Yi at a press conference, he said, quote, a feeling of sour grapes about the achievements of China's cooperation with Africa. So there's that emotional tone, Kobus, that you were talking about. Global Times, which is the nationalistic 
paper, you know, one of these for the Communist Party, highly, highly nationalistic, oftentimes one of the more inflammatory voices within the Communist Party. They wrote, quote, we caution all Chinese enterprises doing business in Africa that Western media and intelligence agencies are scrutinizing Sino-African cooperation with the intention to tarnish China. So there you go. That's again what you pointed out, which is the conflation of the intelligence services and media kind of working together, which you can say a lot of things about Le Monde. Do they, are they an extension of the French Secret Service? Eh, probably not. I, I mean, I don't know where this goes. I think the Chinese are winning the strategy, the media strategy as a communications consultant. I think their response has been, their strength of their response has been the right way to go, to fill the void. It's yeah, ironic in because... Terms of, in terms of search engine optimization, they, they are they're owning winning this. the game at the moment. Because if, if you Google, it, that's essentially the first 10 things that come up are just Chinese denials. Now, you would think that this would be a lesson for them because you and I have talked about over so many years how terrible the Chinese are when it comes to communication strategy, that when there is a need for comment or when there is a need for a spokesperson or some type of kind of perspective from the Chinese into a news story, it's really hard to get. And as a result, they oftentimes get bad coverage for it. Well, here we have an example of they got terrible coverage. They've responded really, really strong in very forceful ways in lots of different media that's being picked up by Quartz, FT, Wall Street Journal, New York Times now. And as you said, they've changed the narrative, at least on Google and the search engines, in part because they're flooding the zone with feedback. And there has been nothing since... The, the initial allegation to challenge the Chinese. So the Chinese came up and said, show us some proof. They laid that down. Le Monde has not been able to go on the record to say that this is somebody who will go on the record to prove that this happened. So in some ways, I think the Chinese are calling the bluff of anybody who wants to challenge the fact that there was these spying incidents that went on. Do you get the sense in that this may change the way the Chinese respond to future crises? Because this is definitely, to me, a different response than in the past. Yes, I think so. It, it looks like uh, we, we might be seeing the dawn of a new kind of Chinese communication strategy, a lot more assertive and a lot quicker to anger, actually. So, for example, um, there was an incident in, in South Africa last week where the president of the Tibetan government in exile came to South Africa. And he was invited by, not by, he, it wasn't in no way a, an official visit. He was invited by an opposition, a small opposition political party. He he also traveled on a U.S. passport, which means that he doesn't have to apply for a visa to South Africa. He could just arrive. So the South African government didn't even know, as far as I understand, they didn't even know he was in the country. Then it came out and the Chinese were immediately like really like hitting the big guns, you know, saying like this, this endangers the relationship between South Africa and China. This, in, you know, kind of endangers the possibility of Chinese investment in South Africa. It endangers the possibility of Chinese anti-poverty, you know, kind of measures in Africa. And keep in mind, I mean, South Africa is not only China's one of their key allies on the continent. It's also the 20 year celebration of China-South Africa diplomatic relations this year. They have shared BRICS, you know, chairpersonships this year. So this this is a really crazy year to be making those kind of harsh allegations. And the South African government then, you know, on their, on their part, like issued another kind of angry statement afterwards. And it was this very interesting moment where even in this kind of relationship between these two allies that are very, very close relationship, China kind of pulled that trigger immediately. Um, and it's, it, was, it is an interesting maybe indication that, that, that China is becoming more assertive. Well, 
I think it's definitely that they're becoming more assertive, but also because anything to do with Tibet is a red line issue. This is like putting a red flag in front of a raging bull, and that's bound to get a response like that no matter what, no matter where. Similar responses have happened in the United States, in Australia and whatnot. But I think to your point, it is a reflection of a more robust Chinese attitude on the international stage. And I have a feeling we're going to see a, this is a reflection in some ways of Xi Jinping's confidence and that confidence then spreading throughout the foreign ministry and how they engage the world, which is going to be much more on their terms and much more forceful. And the West and other critics are going to have to be on the defensive. So in some ways, this is a good lesson, not just for the Chinese and how they engage in media strategy in Africa, but I think for how the rest of the world learns how to deal with the more robust Chinese response, that if you don't have an answer to an allegation against the Chinese, they're going to come at you and they're going to come at you hard. And that's what we've seen in this particular instance. But it's also, you know, in this case, it's also, it reveals the African Union in lots of kind of unflattering ways. Because the, one of the reasons why we're now probably ne will not get any kind of clarification of this issue is because the AU is now crouching and will not, you know, will probably not allow any kind of independent investigation into the situation and won't be saying anything. No. You know, kind of which, which from an African perspective is one of, you know, it's, it's not surprisingly that Africans generally are extremely lukewarm about the AU. Um, you know, well, like, this, yeah, this, this reaffirms the existing narrative, yeah. the prevailing narrative of the AU is as a toothless body. As just a weak organization, is, yeah. As a weak organization. Let's close our discussion I mentioned on Paul Kagame, who is the current president of the African Union. He's the president, uh, a chairman, I think he's the chairman or he's the president, he's the head of, you know, there is the African Union Commission is Musa Faki Muhammad, and then there's Paul Kagame, who I think is the president or chairman, he's, they, they rotate yeah. leaders, whatever it is. But he gave what I thought was the most insightful perspective on this. He said, quote, I don't think there's anything done here that we would not like people to know. I don't think spying is the specialty of the Chinese. I would only have wished that in Africa we had got our act together earlier on. We should have been able to build our own building. And I thought that response was so interesting because he doesn't deny that this may have been done by the Chinese. But he says ultimately this was the burden of Africa and the African Union and Africans to have prevented this from happening in the first place if it did happen. Because as I think as Paul Kagame is alluding to, certainly the Chinese are capable of spying, but the French have been spying in Africa, the British have been spying in Africa, the Germans have been spying in Africa, the Americans have been spying in Africa for decades. And that's just the nature of it. And maybe it reveals more about weakness and strength, that the strong dominate the weak in many different ways, and spying is just one of them. I didn't do a kind of a, a big media survey um, in in Africa about this issue, but I think some of some of the discourse that I've seen is in the line of, well, you know, this <laughs> we you know we we're not so really surprised that people are treating Africa in this way. You know, it's 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 happened before; it'll probably happen again. There is this kind of weird, like, well, you know, what can you expect? Kind of kind of tone in some of the African coverage of this. But that's a reasonable response because at the end of the day, it's like us getting hacked for our credit cards or the United States sucking up all of the phone data from Mexico. What are Mexican consumers to do about that? What is an African to do when, when the Chinese are spying? Nothing. You almost have to have this fatalistic response in this day and age that there are hackers and there are government agencies spying and that the Russians are meddling with elections and in various parts of the world. And that's just the, the world we live in today. 
Yeah. And I, you know, so in some ways I get what, what they're saying, that there is a certain fatalistic response. I don't mean to leave us on a sour note, but that is, I think, where we are in this day and age, in both in our personal lives and in our politics around the world. So it's a little bit depressing, but uh, what do you think of what, what, what's what been going on? We have this very, very lively conversation going on over on LinkedIn, over on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. Do you think that the allegations are true? And if they are, what should Africans do in response? Is there anything that Africans can do in response? Does this go to the heart of Chinese credibility in Africa? as to whether or not they are a trusted partner. And then what do you think of the Chinese response and how forceful they've been in in very many ways, expressing themselves in new, uncharacteristic ways, much more aggressive, much more assertive? Is this something that's encouraging or discouraging? So we have a lot of questions. We're not pretending, actually, that we have any of the answers, but we do think that this is an area to explore and that we'll have to continue our discussion on it probably in the next weeks or months. I mean, as we said, in, in Africa, the topic is dying down. The Chinese are still very, very much trying to assert that they're innocent in this. And Le Monde hasn't really come up with anything to say otherwise. So it's it's really a fascinating tale. Kobus, do you have any final thoughts on this? Yes, I, I think, you know, it, it is a very intriguing moment. I think we should definitely keep our eyes on this because it reveals so much. On the one hand, it reveals that Africa, to a large extent, isn't as assertive or as self quickly developing and as self-assured as it would like to pretend to be. I mean, you know, we've over the last while, we've seen a lot of kind of triumphant discourse coming out of Africa about the fast growth of African economies and how its future youth bulge means it is the 21st century. And, you know, all of, all of these kind of discourses are, are coming out of Africa. This is a significant stumble to that, to that narrative. And at the same time, I think if it heralds the dawn of a new kind of Chinese communication style, a much more in-your-face communication style, then it'll be very interesting to see what the kind of diplomatic fallout of that is around the world. Because, you know, taking this kind of like angry tone in this case is one thing, but taking it in in subsequent cases in other countries is going to present interesting challenges. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Okay, well, what a fascinating discussion. This is a topic that, of course, we're going to continue to discuss on our various social media platforms. And we we will mention it in our upcoming email newsletter. Uh, if you haven't signed up for that newsletter, it's a great way to stay on top of the weekly highlights and lowlights of what's going on China Africa News. Sign up for it at ChinaAfricaProject.com or over on our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash ChinaAfricaProject. So until next week, Kobus and I will be back with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.